Welcome to Euros Harley's Finding the Front, where we get to know the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies, providing you with real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here's your host, Tim Banfield. Welcome everyone and thanks for tuning in to a brand new episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. Euros Hartley's is a proudly Western Australian leading financial services business, specialising in the provision of corporate finance, wealth management, stockbroking, institutional sales and targeted research services. If you'd like to learn more about the expertise and services we provide, please don't hesitate to contact us or visit us at www.eurosheartleys.com. Well, what a cracker of an episode we have for our Finding the Front listeners today. Our guest is highly respected and highly regarded business leader, Mr. Anthony Kiernan AM. Tony, as he is well known, is a 35-year veteran in the management and operation of listed public companies and is the current non-executive chair of Lithium Powerhouse, Pilbara Minerals, stock code PLS, and is also the current non-executive chair of growing Leonora Gold Miner, Rally Finless and Lead, Genesis Minerals, stock code GMD. Tony has many, many highlights throughout his wonderfully impressive career. The learnings and takeaways are immense. In this captivating chat, we touch on his early days growing up, his move to being involved in media and law. Then we pivot and focus on his stellar board level influence and contribution to the mining and resource focused corporate world. Tony shares some seriously valuable insights on mining, his belief in cash flow and in dividends, and his love of the mining sector and the people in it absolutely shines through. In recognition of his lifetime of effort, Tony was awarded a member of the Order of Australia for his significant service to business and the community, which says it all. This is an absolute ripper. And Tony, as you would expect, says it as he sees it. So without further ado, it is a huge privilege to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, the non-executive chair of Genesis Minerals and Pilbara Minerals and all-round great bloke, Mr. Tony Keenan. Tony, thanks very much for joining us on Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. We really do appreciate you taking some time out of your huge schedule. I know you've literally just flown back from Melbourne. To be on the show, we have a lot to cover and you've had such a hugely impressive and interesting career, but it, it's just so good that you could take the time out to join us. Oh, no, no problem, Tim. I appreciate the opportunity. You know, <laughs> and, your, and your job is to make a boring bloke sound interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Tony, I, just to start with, as we usually do on, on the podcast, is, is learn a little bit about your, about your background, which is just really interesting. You were born in Perth back in 1950. Yes, in Subiaco. And, yeah, and, and tell us a little bit about that when you grew up. Oh, well, I was, I was a Perth boy. I did primary schooling. In fact, I did first school was St Thomas Street State School. Yeah. Uh, then I, secondary schooling was uh, primary schooling, sorry, Christchurch, and then Guildford Grammar School. Um, I was born into a, um, a trucking family. 
my father, Laurie Kiernan, was running a uh, transport company called James Kiernan that had been started by his grandfather many, many years before that. And we lived in a railway parade, West Leaderville, and the house was on the back of the uh, the transport depot. So I used to spend a lot of time, not that I'm very mechanical, Tim, I can give you the big tip, <laughs> but uh, running around the trucks and looking at what they were carrying and that sort of stuff. And often I was driven to school by uh, by some by some drivers in old Bedford truck. <laughs> Is so, that right? Yeah, yeah. Tell me, you went to Christchurch, then went across to Guildford. I did, I did, yeah. Christchurch, I lived in Dalkeith and I went to Christchurch. My father was an old Gifordian and he'd boarded from the age of nine. Yeah. So I was in that era where, you know, send the boys off to boarding school and, and if, if the preference is there or the ability there, go where your father went. So I went off to Guildford Grammar School at the age of 12. And you boarded? I boarded. I boarded for five years. Yeah. Uh, at Guildford. I had one year where I went to Victoria. Dad in the transport business was working for May Nicholas at the time, which had bought James Keenan Transport. And uh, I spent a year at Caulfield Grammar. Okay. Um, and then I came back to Guildford. We, the, ho- can... the home of Chris Judd. <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately, Christopher Scase. Oh, really? so <laughs> Caulfield Grammar, but not to worry. <laughs> Tony, interesting though, you, your upbringing with regards to the trucking business. What did you take out of that? I mean, that's a, to be bought by May and Nicholas was c- clearly a pretty serious operation. It had a role to play in the heavy haulage up into the infrastructure for the Pilbara, didn't it? Yeah, no, very much. Dad was uh, very much involved in the infrastructure side of the Pilbara yeah. with the heavy haulage. I mean, this was when Port Hedland was being built and Finnegan Island, those places. Right. And Dad had a, um, not that he came from a technical background, but he had the ability to design heavy haulage trucks. And James Keenan was building a name for being in the heavy haulage, and I mean the heavy haulage, not yes. just not just carrying light uh, light stuff around Perth. And that's what attracted May Nicholas to, to, to take over the family business. And Dad continued to work for them for a little while, but then he wanted to come back to Perth. Sure. That was quite pioneering by your grandfather and then subsequently your dad. What what were they carting up to Port Hedland to build? Oh, a lot of that was structural steel. Structural steel, Structural yeah. steel. But if you go back to my grandfather, Laurie's dad, yep. who actually started James Keenan, he came out from Ireland as a labourer right. and was labouring at the Swan Brewery and he... Uh, was able to convince the Swan Brewery management to finance him into a horse and cart. And the object of the horse and cart was to carry the kegs around Perth. And from that, it morphed into the transport business, which Dad eventually took over. Gosh, that's a piece of WA history. With regards to your experience then with the trucks and that sort of thing, I mean, did that give you a a bit of a feeling around mining in the north or is there any sort of connection there at that no, point? No, no. You no not real connection but what I suppose as a kid you work out that things are infrastructure yes. um, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so no, it didn't really lead me into mining but it just exposed me to uh, you've got to pick things up, dad charges a rate and then they drop it off the other end. Yeah. But certainly as a young kid we certainly spent many a many a day in the back of his Chevy driving up following some of the heavy haulage trucks up to Port Hedland through Marble Bar and uh, Wim Creek and those places. I could imagine him turning around saying, stop fighting in the back a few times. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's when you didn't have iPads with kids and that sort of stuff, Tim. So, uh, yeah, but that was interesting. I mean, obviously, I remember Great experience. I mean, the first time I saw camels was uh, was, it, was it Marble Borough, Wim Creek. I didn't even know what they were, you know. The dad came around the corner and there were the camels in the middle of the road. So it was quite formative for a young boy who was eight or nine sitting in the back of the uh, dad Chevy DeSoto for, uh, for days on end. Oh, fantastic. And how did you find boarding at Guildford? Yeah, it was good. I yeah. mean, uh, people say, do you love it? Well, you don't necessarily love it, but it was practical for me. I played a lot of sport, so it was convenient for that. I formed a lot of friends. Uh, most of the guys at Guildford, of course, were from the from the country and I was from the city. Yes. So, no, boarding was quite influential on me. Yeah. You learn a lot. I mean, those those 
guys that you boarded with would be uh, close friends, I'd say, for you develop that friendship. Yeah, I mean, you, I, bo- I boarded for five years as well. Were you a Scotch College boy, were you? Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah, it looks like one. So, <laughs> uh, my, my son actually went to Scotch. Um, <laughs> cause, uh, no, but Guildford was good for me. It was, as I sort of played a lot of cricket, played a lot of footy. As you would know, Tim, you're, you're probably one of the Banfield's great sportsmen. Guildford weren't that strong in footy and Aquinas used to wallop the backside office. But uh, we were pretty strong in cricket. And in my last year, we won the Darlow Cup, and uh, which is the uh, which is the cricketing yep. thing. And I was yep. the vice-captain of the the team to the uh, the captain was the great Bruce DePeruzel. Oh, uh, really? Mm. Oh, fantastic. Gosh, well, that's the holy grail of cricket. Yeah. yeah. At that, that level. Well, well, it was. I mean, and uh, my son consistently reminds me I got five for in the first inning. So, you know, <laughs> and, uh, as, as a Scotch boy, he was playing cricket up at Guildford. He was in the pavilion and they've got photos of the 1968 Darlow team with the old man's bowling figure. So, uh, oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. He was happy with all that. <laughs> it's a good way of segueing into your family. Tony, you mentioned your kids. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, because I know you've got grandkids as well. So yes, I have. You... I have three children, Joanna and Emily and Ben, and the three wonderful children. And, and as a dad, it's just nice to sit back and know that they're all looking after themselves. You know, the dad bank doesn't need to be around. Um, <laughs> and uh, Joanna, my older one, she's company secretary for a number of companies in the junior resources space. Uh, so she sort of followed on that line. Yes. Um, Emily, my second daughter, is a management consultant for McKinsey. So uh, she lives in Melbourne. And Fantastic. Ben and Ben's a 30-year-old knockabout lawyer who uh, does a fair bit in the mining space and rings me up and says, Dad, do you know this bloke? I said, Ben, get it in writing, will you? We'll get cash up front. Um, so, yeah, so uh, the, the three of them, and they're fantastic kids and that sort of stuff. Emily lives in Melbourne, but Joe and, uh, and Ben are here. And, yes, I have grandchildren. Lovely Lily over here, who's granddaughter to a uh, child, sorry, my granddaughter, but daughter to Joe and Paul. Yeah. And then in Melbourne I've got uh, Harriet and, and Charlie. And I'm pleased to say that those in Melbourne are very strong Docker supporters. Unfortunately, Lily here sort of walks around with an Eagles flag. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, I try to spend a bit of time with them. It, it, you, you can't all the time. Yeah. But, but ages, I was saying to you beforehand, Tim, you know, the kids love to play with me and that sort of stuff. And they're always pointing to the floor and I, I've got to get a chair in and that sort of stuff. But it's interesting when you see these kids grow up, you know, and, and, oh, and that look, sort of stuff. And, you know, for the listener, I can see Tony's face light up as he talks about his grandkids. It's pretty exciting stuff. So tell me, when you left school, did you have any idea? We often ask this on Finding the Front. Did you have any idea on on what you wanted to do with your life at that no, point? No, not really. I mean, I wanted to go to university, but I was ambivalent as to what I should do. But I can remember my dad sitting down saying, look, I know you want to go to university, but try and get yourself a discipline, which is a clear discipline, something you can fall back on. Whereas if you did a commerce degree or an arts degree, with great respect to those that do those things, it doesn't necessarily give you the defined discipline which law did. Yes. So Dad suggested I uh, move into uh, and do law. And were you academic? I wasn't overly academic. Right. I mean, Guildford and academia aren't really aren't really close friends. I can tell you, Tim. They're, right. We, we, we weren't the brightest <laughs> in the world, and I think uh, back in those days. Were they called leaving or matriculation? I can't remember. But the results I got wouldn't have got me into uh, into law school 15 or 20 years later. But no, I wasn't academic. But, but I mean, I, look, I quite like the law and that sort of stuff. Yes. I, so I, I failed, uh, passed first year, but failed second year law because I had a number of mates who were playing footy for Claremont. So I spent a lot of time down the Claremont Football Club playing pill, watching them, uh, watching them train. So I think <laughs> I, got, I got one unit in uh, second year law, and that was crime. Um, <laughs> it was the only one I passed. But, but subsequent to that, I put the head down. And, uh, and worked fairly hard and did, 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 did pretty well in my final couple of years of law. Well, you went on to become a lawyer as such and you, you worked in law for a number of years following UWA. Yep. Tell me, 
you ended up in, I mean, you went away and did some travelling. Yeah, I did. I did. I travelled like any um, any Perth boy. We have the Aussie Aussie trip when you're about 24 or 25. Yeah. You uh, flog over to Europe. You uh, stand around in London. You buy yourself a combi wagon and off you go to Europe. And I did that. Denise, myself, my then wife, did that. for were there for eight or nine months. I ran into mum and dad, and dad was at that stage, he was in the television business. It's interesting that he went from transport into television yes. um, because they're not really things that work together. But dad's uh, dad had some friends. Uh, Dennis, the late Dennis Cully was a very good friend of dad's. He right. was the chairman of Swan Television. And in the early days, they were losing money. So, so just to pause there, Tony, he was working in television and it's called Swan Television. Swan Television and Radio Broadcasters. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, the board of Swan Television asked Dad to go out and have a look and Dad is very much a cost man and very much a revenue man. Right. And he appreciated you need sales, sales, sales. So Dad uh, Dad worked pretty hard. He constantly reminded me that when I came here, son, we had to borrow to pay the wages. And, yeah, move on, Dad, move on, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. But to answer the question, yes, he then uh, he then he went to the television station, was offered a full-time job, took the job as managing director and that sort of stuff. And I think probably Dad's interest in um, in television was piqued by the fact that when we lived in um, lived in Perth, every Wednesday night, the Skyline Drive-In, I don't know if you can remember what drive-ins were, Tim, you're too young. Vaguely, we had one growing <laughs> yeah, up, in querying. Know, in query, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, you would have used it as a passion pit, mate, I can tell you. <laughs> but every every Wednesday night, Dad, it was, it was cowboy night at the Skyline Drive-In. So I put on my six-gun and my jodhpurs and my cowboy hat, and uh, off we went to uh, off we went to the, uh, the the movies. But anyway, Dad, as I said, I just changed the subject. Dad got into television, and I was travelling around Europe with my wife at the time. Ran into Dad, and he's we're just talking, and he said, "Look, television is actually changing. It's gone from a bit of a, a bureaucratic situation where public hearings and those sorts of stuff, and you've got to be far more sort of socially responsible." He said. We're actually going to go and advertise for a lawyer. And I said, well, if you're going to advertise, I'll apply. Yes. And he said, well, if you're going to apply, you can have it. <laughs> so uh, I then went out to Good channel. Good uh, uh, Yeah. No. <laughs> the way it worked. But I stood my ground. I stood my ground. So, yeah, I was out at uh, Swan Television Channel 9 for, um, for, I think, nearly eight years, Tim, obviously as a general lawyer. Yes. But I got involved in, that was the time in which Kerry Packer was pushing for a, a satellite. And we didn't have satellite communications in those days. And uh, Packer wanted to, uh, wanted to be able to run his network throughout all of Australia. And we saw that as threatening the viability of the, of the local Perth station because all the news would have come from Sydney and Melbourne and that sort of stuff. Yes. Um, so I spent a fair bit of time on that and also spent a year and a half running the radio station. That, well, that radio station was 6KY. 6KY, which is now 94.5. 94.5. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How did you find running a radio station? I didn't do it well. <laughs> I, I, Tim, I, I did not do it well. Uh, yeah, no, it was difficult. I was dealing with difficult personalities and that sort of stuff. But once again, I like, like Dad, I uh, I learned that revenue drives these things, revenue and ratings and that sort of stuff. But it was it was difficult for me. And at that time, I'd been running the station for about a year, year and a half, and the Bond Corporation was very active in its media. Alan Bond, through the Bond Corporation, just bought Channel 9 in Brisbane and then made an offer to buy Channel 9 in Perth. It was one of those offers that, gee, we only get it once in our lifetime. So uh, the board of Channel 9 took it, including my father, but I stayed for a little while. Right. And, uh, and uh, the late Warren Jones was our sort of go-to player there. Yes. And uh, I remember driving into uh, into the Tewit Hill Studios one day thinking, 
gee, this Bond Corporation, you know, they, they owe a lot of money to a lot of people. And I thought, they're going to be heavily financed. I could come to the gate one day and find Quarter Mentha or Deloitte's there as the receiver. So I thought, oh, no, I'll just get out of here. Yeah. No, no disrespect to the Bond Corporation, but I just wanted to move on. Yeah. I didn't particularly want to work for them. They were just cash-driven. What money have you got in the bank? We want to use it and that sort of stuff. So so I left, uh, I resigned from Channel Live from uh, the radio station, yeah. So this is a quite a, a sliding door moment at this point. So you've come out of being a media lawyer, running a radio station, and you sort of pivoted then into business more generally. I did. I, yeah, I was never. I never was destined to be a lawyer, lawyer yes. as, as such. I mean, it's a great discipline, and my son's a lawyer. Right. Which, which is terrific. But no, I'd always had a, a bit of an interest in business, and, and and when I left, I went to West Perth, took an office with my great mate Tim Goiter, and I continued to practice law, mainly at the junior end of the market. There was a time where there were a lot of companies being floated. Yes. Guys didn't have the 15, the 20 grand, the 30 grand to afford the lawyers, so I actually capitalised or took my wages or, or my salary or the fees in, in shares and stock. Yes, yes. Um, so I got involved in a lot of companies that way. Just, just doing that sort of stuff, and uh, I can remember Tim. I mean, I know you know the resources sector, and the, it's uh, pretty aggressive and pretty interesting in WA. And uh, you know, something th- th- they can float and list things at the drop of a hat. I actually listed the same asset three times, and at least the third guy had the incense to change the name. So yes, I did. I I spent a fair bit of time in the um, yes doing that sort of stuff, and uh, also with the with, with the media background, I was approached by um, the Kerry Stokes Controlled Companies, Australian Capital Equity, owned by the Stokes family. Kerry was involved in Channel Seven in Canberra at the time, but he wanted to make an application for the third television license in Perth. Yes. At that time, we had channels nine and seven. Yes. And Channel Ten became available, so I was asked to uh, to have a look at that. And that took two and a half years out of my life. It was a very contracted, very contested hearing. You know, we had our lead counsel was with Darrell Williams, who became Attorney General. Right. Assisted uh, with Michael Slattery, who became um, chair of the New South Wales Bar, and the, and Neville Owen and myself were the four lawyers involved in about two and a half year hearing. Gosh, it was a very and, contested hearing. And yeah. and what was the outcome? Well, we won the license. Oh. That was, I mean, that's quite a success story in itself. It was. It was difficult. And then Kerry wrapped the whole lot up and sold it all. Good luck to him. <laughs> <laughs> but he made sure that we made a dollar out of it. He was he was fair. Yes. Yeah, Kerry was quite fair. Yes. And that sort of stuff. But but at the same time, I still continued to try to continue on in um, in doing law. I got involved in Barron Films for a while. I was a friend of Paul Barron's. Right. Um, so I was the director of Barron Films for a while. Through my uh, through my media background, that sort of stuff. And is that did you do well in the film industry? No, no, no. It was very difficult. Tough gig. Oh, tough gig, and yeah. uh, and uh, great. Paul Paul was very good, but he believed in critical uh, in artistic success. Yes. But me and artistic success are one thing. I prefer the financial success, and uh, it, it, no, it didn't go well. It was fine. It was fine, but Tony, if we move into the mining side of your junior exploration and, and and your understanding of that business. A lot went on in that period of time between you and Tim and, and certain companies and that sort of thing. But the one I, I wanted to drill down on a little bit more was your the drilling company, Grimwood Davies. Hmm. What, a, what a fantastic story that has become. But, you know, the experience would have just been, for you being a media lawyer, uh, For, former media a lawyer. Former media, correct, former but now, media but lawyer. But now, now a resource tycoon, yes, yeah. at this page, you know, <laughs> hanging around with companies with a market cap of $2 million, $2 billion, yeah, yeah, go on. Having a crack. Yeah. 
And and that's a good way of describing it, having a crack. At this point, yeah, Grimwood Davies, tell us yeah. a little bit about that one. Yeah, I was sharing off with Tim, uh, and as you know, you've interviewed Tim. He's a really go-getting sort of a guy, very self-driven, uh, Tim. Uh, we had a company, I can't even remember what's name, we had a lot of broke companies at that stage, <laughs> um, and we decided we needed to put a business into it. So uh, we went and approached uh, Denny Grimwood, who was running a company called uh, Grimwood Drilling. Um, we put three rab rigs into this this company and, and listed it yes. through, I think, through Hartley Point, I think, from memory. Uh, Rob Black, I think. Anyway, the fact of the matter is we built the business up. Tim was the uh, Tim was the, uh, the manager director. The late David Aspinall, who came from the Channel Line side of things, was, was our chair, and I was an executive director. Tim, unfortunately, contracted leukaemia. I remember him walking into my office. Uh, I don't know what Tim would have been. He must have been mid-30s with tears in his eyes and said, look, TK, I've just been diagnosed with leukaemia. Uh, it ain't looking good. So he had to look after his health. Yes. The board turned around to me and said, well, look, Tony, you, you know you're the business. We know you don't necessarily come from a drilling background, but would you step in as the managing director, which... I was happy to do, but as you pointed out, Tim, it didn't not the sort of thing that came naturally to me. You know, if you look at my hands, they're what I call corporate hands. They're not, they're not operating <laughs> hands, which I often show people up on, on site when they ask me questions. I say, have a look at these. These are corporate hands, mate. They, you know, I wouldn't even know what a wrench is. But anyway, no, I did. Um, I can't, can't remember how many rigs we had at the time. Probably we, we'd merged with Keith Biggs's RC Drilling in, in Kalgoorlie and we'd formed and changed the name of the company from Grimwood to Grimwood Davies. I think we probably had 12 or 13 rigs. Yes, and I went on as the managing director for a couple of years and it was difficult for me because these things don't come naturally and the, and the way that they express themselves in the drilling industry is not necessarily the way I used to express myself on the corporate table. Yes. Like, you know, they'll say, it's rooted. And I say, well, hang on, does it work? <laughs> and that sort of stuff. So, uh, but look, I was flogging around the bush there with the hard hat and the, and the boots for a couple of years. And I really admire those who work in the bush. You know, the, the drillers were working in the heat yep. and the rain and that sort of stuff. I, I admired them for it. But Tim was, even though Tim was not well, he, he kept an eye on it. And uh, Tim understood that in drilling, you need metres per day. Yes. How many metres has each rig done? So at least I had the sense to be able to get from the chief financial guys a, a sheet of paper every day to say what rig one, rig two, rig three, rig four, rig five had done, how many metres they'd done. I mean, you wanted your um, you want, you wanted your RC rig to do between 150 and 220 metres. You want your RAB rig to do probably three or 400 metres. You want your diamond rig to do 30 or 40 metres in a shift. So I, I sort of learnt all that. And uh, as part of that, I then had the, the fortune of taking a couple of rigs offshore. We bought a business in uh, in Dubbo, New South Wales, on the multi-purpose side of things, which was rig, which both is both RC and diamond. But I was rung up by um, a New Zealand geologist who is now working for Anglo in in Tanzania, who had used the Grimwood Rab rigs before. Right. And Rab drilling was a concept not really used in Africa, and he rang up and said, "We'd like you to come over here to uh, to Tanzania, and talk to us about bringing a couple of rigs over." Which, which I did. Yes. Uh, immediately, as soon as I got that call, I rang, um, I rang our chief operating officer and said, mate, I think I need you. I think you need to come over <laughs> to Engineering and start talking about, a solo gig. <laughs> about, about rig capacity and PSIs and all that sort of stuff. Uh, anyway, yes, I, I then took a couple of rigs to Tanzania. I had the fortune to take a rig, an RC rig to Burkina Faso yeah. for, for Resolute. So as you say, Tim, it was a bit out of my comfort zone, but it made me, it hardened me up and uh, I understand the concept of hard work. Uh, and I understand, you know, a bit about being in the bush. Uh, uh, and also the drilling business. The drilling business is not easy. It's changed enormously. Um, obviously, it's now when Tim took over the uh, 
the uh, the business when he eventually bought it out following a downturn. Tim did a lot of work in changing the nature of the rigs, improving the safety, bringing automatic rod handling and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a tough gig. It was a tough gig, but it's a good gig. You can make good money. Yeah. Um, but geez, you make shit money at times too. Yeah. You know, in the good days, you can get a um, a dollar per meter, but you can also charge for your compressor and your your support trucks. But in the bad times, you can't. You just you know, so it's a tough business. It sort of follows along that line of what you appreciated, I suppose, back in the early days with your dad in terms of infrastructure and yeah. plant and machinery and what's required. And it would have given you also a good basis for the journey that you've been on going forward too in terms of your understanding of how those businesses work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The other one that I just wanted to talk a little bit about you know, you you had a number of junior explorers in those days, but you you did get involved with Chalice Gold Mines in the early days. Yeah, yeah, with it, Tim. Yeah, yeah. we were sharing an office together, and um, uh, you know, times were a little bit tough. But Tim was, as you know, he's always at the forefront. He's always you know raising money and and, and talking the. Uh, he says he's a modest person, but mate, he can talk the book. Believe me. Uh, <laughs> but he's not. He's a terrific guy. Tim's probably my closest mate. Yeah, Chalice, we'd sort of certainly put a lot of money into uh, into a number of projects in West Australia. An opportunity came to, to merge with a company um, in Eritrea, a company called Sub-Sahara. I had to look at Eritrea up on the map and I did a bit of work on the risk profile of Eritrea and I suggested to Tim maybe it wasn't on the most, it wasn't high on the, um, on the, on the safety register. You know, yeah. the, the upshot of it was it was a good gold project. It was five, it was, I think it was over five grams open cut and Chalice went, we merged with Sub-Sahara, we acquired the project and spent a couple of years in, in, in developing it. But at the end of the day, uh, it was Chalice's one project. It was a very good project. But part of being in business is you've got to understand risk. Yes. Uh, and if you've got one project, and if that one project's in Africa, your risk profile is high. High. And yep. if the third thing is, it's a country called Eritrea, which the American market don't necessarily like to finance quickly, it, it's, it's a bit of an issue for you. Yes. And we eventually ended up selling it to a Chinese group. We had the Eritrean government in there for about a 30% interest. Um, they had to finance their interest, but they didn't have any money, so they went to China. Um, then they rang us up and said, look, can you guys come up to Shanghai because the uh, the Chinese company wants to buy you guys out too. So uh, we went up there and negotiated with the uh, the Shanghai, Shanghai Construction Group, I think it was. Well, it was a good result for shareholders. Oh, it was a great result yeah, for shareholders. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, can, I, can remember having, <laughs> I, I can remember sitting across the table in uh, in Shanghai and um, they'd mentioned a figure which, let's just say, I can't remember, let's just say it was $8. And Goyda said, no. Nah, uh, and they said, well, what do you want? He said, 20. He, <laughs> he, he said, oh, no, we want 300 million. I said, it just blew me out of my seat. But uh, anyway, we settled him <laughs> down. We settled him down. But no, we did well. You know, as I've always said with Gordon, if I'm on the same side of the table as you, I'm fine. If I'm on the other side of the table, I've got a problem. And I have been on the other side of the table with Tim too, negotiating things and that sort of stuff. Right. But no, but the result was good. We got some good capital and we were able to uh, return some of that capital to our shareholders Yes. Um, at a time in which the junior end of the market really didn't like giving shareholders money um, back. But I think, I, I can't remember the figure, but it would have been 80 to 100 million we returned to shareholders by way of a capital reduction. And uh, I've got mates stopping me in West Perth saying, Tony, you don't do that. Yeah. You, know, you don't give shareholders money. <laughs> but I'm a great believer and Tim is a great believer in, in you know, you've got to give it back to your shareholders. Yes. I mean, and I follow that through my other companies too. And uh, yeah. um, as I said the other day, I mean, I you know, I'm a great believer in dividends. As yes. my late father said, son, if you can't pay a dividend, you ain't in business. So, you know, through the journey of the, you know, BCI and Saracen and, uh, and Pilbara Minerals, which are part of my history, we've always paid dividends. 
but, yeah. but the chalice thing was good. It, it was good. We, we did we did well. Tell me, at this stage, Tony, you know, you've been through a number of different experiences within the resource space, but more on the deal side as well. Would it be a fairly good observation to say that at this period of your career, you garnered a very strong ability to be able to corporately size up a situation because of your legal experience, but also your on the ground and your and your corporate deal experience to be malleable? I think I think that's fair. It. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's what I would call situational awareness, yes. and, and I use that in the but to get the right deal, yeah, or get the right deal, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you. Um, well, obviously, you, you need the technical input, but to get the right deal, um, yeah, you do need to have a broad, uh, broad understanding. Yes. And, and geology is a strange creature. Uh, you're in the risk business and that sort of stuff. But no, I, I sort of, you know, w- with being a lawyer and having been involved in the drilling company and that sort of stuff and working with my good friend Timothy Rupert, yep. Goiter, you learn those sort of things, Tim, yeah. Just before we carry on, I, just your interesting comment, you know, it's the risk business. What drove you with this early sort of, did you just love the, the thrill of the resource sector in terms of the, the find and the deal and, and the people you worked with? What was, the, what was the real driver of this? Because you clearly have enjoyed it for a long period of time. You've got massive amounts of experience and a huge career, but we're in our sort of earlier stages here. What, what, what did you love about it? Well, I, I, the people are pretty good, to tell you the truth. Yeah, a lot of them, yeah. are, I mean, a lot of the geos are pretty grounded. They're, they're pretty normal sort of people. They sort of forget where they are, geologists. I mean, you'd be in the office and you'd say, well, where's Tim Banfield? And you'd say, oh, we don't know. He's gone somewhere. That's the nature of the, the geologist. And that's, no, Tim, I think it was, the, um, it was the, the, the challenge. I mean, people use the phrase the thrill. Yeah. But, gee, you know, you can go from zero to hero or hero to zero <laughs> in 10 minutes, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, a good ore body can hide a lot of sins, can make some pretty ordinary people look good and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, but it, 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 it's a grounded industry. It's yeah. a grounded industry. You, it's difficult conditions and that sort of stuff, but you're dealing with the capital markets, which sometimes have a different view than you, and you're dealing with the operational market. And sometimes they get together, sometimes they don't. But uh, it's just, it just interesting. And working with working with good people on boards, you need to have you know you need to have your range of your skills depending on where you are. But your metallurgist, your geologist, your finance guys, and that sort of stuff. Yes. And I and I was always destined to be involved in business along the line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, at times, you know, that you, you've got to avoid the legal stuff over, over overriding you because some people will uh, get t- take risks too seriously. But but mining is a risk. Yes. I mean, I have a couple of I have three rules. Not three rules. If a young bloke come to me, came to me and said, "Look, Tony, you're an old bloke. You've got grey hair. I'm thinking of going in the resources space." I'd say, "Well, let me just give you three rules. Number one, you are a price taker. That's all you are. Your commodity. You cannot set the price for your commodity. You're a price taker." Yes. Number two, you're in the risk business. You know, you're, you've got a business risk. You've got a geological risk, ge- geopolitical risk, and. Third rule is, son, don't live the dream because tell you what, the dream collapses at some stage. <laughs> <laughs> it's the old Kenny Rogers, you know. Yeah. No one to hold oh, them, no one to show them. But so it's good. And um, I've, I've had a lot of fun in it too. I've, I've had a lot of fun in it. Oh, fantastic. Mm. Thanks, Tony. Well, I want to progress a little bit here. A, a significant part of your career involves a company called BC Iron. You joined as chair in 2006 really interesting company i know you it started out as a junior it involved mike young yeah yeah and yeah. uh and you went on the road to raise money and, and started to drill out the deposit yeah yeah no well bci um, as you said it was uh we're, we're sort of went, weren't too far from the fortescue rail 
and I think DJ Carmichael's were flooding at the time and they came to me, I knew some of the guys, and said, look, Tony, we want to go list this company called BCI and, and we think there's going to be some corporate issues dealing with FMG and getting on the rail and that sort of stuff and uh, we'd like you to look at chairing it, um, which... I, I accepted, and as you say, we then had to raise the money. Mike Young, the then managing director himself, went on the road. And uh, when I can remember vividly, when I was on the road, I kept on saying to the brokers, this is not a lifestyle company. If you give us the money, we're going to drill that resource out. I yeah. can't guarantee it'll work, but it's not a lifestyle company. So people back you for that if you just say, you know, people understand in exploration, you lose money. Yeah. Um, but, gee, you can make money. Anyway, we, uh, we drilled the resource out, improved the resource up, and it was a good resource, but it's bulk commodity. And by bulk commodity, I mean it's a bulk commodity. Yeah. You know, you, you, you've got to move thousands of tons and that sort of stuff. And I think we were looking to uh, to uh, to export something like six thousand tons per annum. And we were three hundred kilometres from the coast. The railway for the FMG railway down at at Christmas Creek wasn't too far away. So we knew we had to sort of negotiate with the FMG to get on their rail. And it wasn't easy. It was a time in which Andrew was arguing with BHP and Rio to trying to get on the West uh, the West Pilbara Rail. Yes. So we thought, well, maybe they'll be a bit more conducive to deal with us. So we went to FMG and endeavoured to get on their rail and it was, it was a difficult process. It was a difficult process to get on the rail. At the end of the day, we were able to get on the FMG rail and we had to bring them into the project and I got quite heavily criticised for doing it because people were saying, well, look, you know, you've given away a fair fair chunk of your value. Mm. And I said, mate, we're 300 kilometres from the coast. I got no value. Yeah. And our board appreciated that and understood that. So we negotiated with FMG and brought them into the project and, and that made the company. That, that made the company. Well, it was the first... Junior mining company was to the use, first junior, junior to use mining. both third-party rail and port infrastructure. That's right. Yeah, owned by the major company being in the Pilbara. Yeah, yeah, which was quite a significant achievement. And and not to mention that it was highly successful and delivered a significant dividend to shareholders. Oh, it did it? Did we did? Um, it was a time in which um, the market for iron was pretty strong. So I mean, uh, we were 58 percent iron, right. uh, whereas Rio and BHP are 62%, yep. which is the higher. But in that time, you could get away with your 57 58%. I mean, Fortescue, I think, generally runs about 56%. But no, we garnered good money. We um, we had strong cash ca- cash flow, cash balance. And uh, as I mentioned before, we were able to pay a dividend, which was, was terrific. I remember the day that I said, boys, we're doing well here. Let's pay a divvy. <laughs> My dad was very happy. <laughs> not, that he was, not that he was a shareholder, but he understood that, you know, you've got to pay a divvy. Which, which we did, but um, BCI had a good journey. But but like a lot of projects, you eventually run out of ore, and we uh, we, we we sold the uh, the camp and the what was left of the project to to FMG. But it was a it was a good journey. That delivery of shareholder return to in Chalice, and then it's occurred again in BCI, and and then again you've got that example which we'll get to in Saracen, and then you've got it again with Pilbara. Mm. That that method of doing business, your rules and of engagement are clearly shining through. You can see a consistent path. It seems to be quite a theme. Well, yes, but, you know, you, there's a lot of people who make up a team. Mm. I mean, you know, going back to the BCI days, Mike Young, Mike was a terrific resource geologist. He wasn't the best person of, of looking after the widgets. And I can remember when we got into production, I said, Mike, we're in the widget business now. And he said, what do you mean? I said, Michael, we are in the cost business because that's what you are in the resource. You're in the cost business. Mike was a big picture man and did a wonderful job. Um, but Mike stepped down and then the chief financial officer, Morgan Ball, stepped in as the managing director. And uh, Morgan 
was then in Saris and Northern Star and he's now in Genesis too. But you, but you do need people around you that, yes. that understand that. But certainly, Tim, from my point of view, if you ask anyone, um, you ask Rally Finlayson, and you ask Dale Henderson, and you ask Ken Brinson, Tony's very cash flow driven, yes. very cash flow driven. You've got to have cash in the bank yeah. um, and, and that sort of stuff. Loud um, and clear. Yeah. That's a good part. We, we could then move into... Though, I mean, you just mentioned a group of people there are quite um, quite significant in terms of, well, you looked at then opportunities to be a chair in other companies and you've gone to Pilbara Minerals in 2016. It's an amazing story, an amazing journey. Here we are in 2023 with a market cap in excess of $12 billion. Well, yeah. I mean, it yeah. was, you know, probably two months ago, it was close to $15 billion. That's right. Billion. Yeah. A lot of money. It's a lot of money, and you've been chaired and overseen that period, yep. and and, yep. and along with the team. Yep. Tell us a little bit about that and how you joined Pilbara, and 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 you mentioned Ken, Ken's involvement at the time as well. Uh, yeah, no, Ken rang me up. They were Pilbara was the sort of an exploration company. I mean, it was run started by Neil Biddle and John Young, who are well known West Australian um, explorers, and with sometimes a colourful background. I knew them both pretty well. Yeah. They're good guys. Look, they'd got the stage where they, they had a resource and they knew, hang on, we're exploration geologists. We just need to get a new team in. They brought Ken in who'd been running Atlas, who yes. had run Atlas in his in his days. Um, and they said, look, Ken, we want you to, if you go, give Tony Cannon a ring and see if he'd uh, like to join the board. Ken rang me. Um, as a blast from the past, he came and spoke to me. I said, well, KB, I'm pretty happy what I'm doing. I was up in the Chalice office at the time, yep. that sort of stuff. But I spoke to Ken about his vision for lithium and his understanding the EV market yes. and the critical minerals and those sorts of things. And he convinced me that he knew what he was doing. And also, as I said to him, anyone who survived the Atlas experience has got a rough idea how to run a company. Yes. So, uh, And then Neil Biddle rang me the following day just to follow up on that. So, yes, I joined the board. And the object was just to raise money and put it into uh, into into development. And at the time, the spodumene market was we, we sell a thing called spodumene, which is which is, which is a uh, a ton of processed ore which contains between five and six percent lithium, and that's called spodumene. Yes, that's what we do. So, yep, I did that. Tell me about the pricing for for spodumene back then when you were looking at it. I reckon it's been a bit of a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah. I reckon when we did the I can't remember when we did the um the FID or the final investment decision on Pilgangora, but my heart would tell me the spodumene price would probably eight or nine hundred dollars a ton. Mm. And then Tim, if you talk about pricing, if I go back now, it's twenty twenty three now, if I go back three years, we were selling for three hundred and eighty dollars a ton. Which as I said to your rule number one, you're a price taker. Yes. Um so at eight or nine hundred um, dollars a ton. It was viable at three hundred and eighty dollars a ton. It certainly was not. We we're probably losing three. We we're probably losing. If you put all costs in, including me and having a cup of tea and those sorts of things, we we're probably losing two hundred and fifty three hundred dollars a ton. And then just to continue the pricing, and our average pricing in the December, what we sell the product for, the December quarter, we would have been probably close to five thousand dollars US a ton. It's not there now. No, she's she softened a fair bit. Yeah, uh, in the last couple of weeks or a couple of months, but certainly, yeah. Tony, that point where you were sort of, to, to use a term, you, you're staring into the abyss in terms of that price drop and you're losing money like that. I just want to use this as an example in mining of where it takes courage to continue on and, and know what your business model is and understand it and where you're heading. Yeah. And, that, and this is where the, the partnership or the relationship you had with Ken was quite important. You, know, yeah. you go back to that strategy of where he saw things were going. Yeah. yeah, no, he had a view of where it was going and I did too. We could have closed the operation down then. We yes. could have closed them. And we, it was obviously, 
you have options to close down, moderate a production, whatever it is. We wanted to keep it going because we believe for two reasons. One, we believed in the market. And secondly, we built up a fair bit of intellectual property yeah. within, with inside the business. It's not like iron ore. Iron ore, you dig it up, you crush it, you rail it, you truck it and you ship it. In lithium, you've got to process it. Um, and the, the the nature of the um, of the crystals in the, in the in the pit can change a lot. So, what you focus on is what you call your recovery. For each ton of ore you put through, you try and recover as much payable minerals as you can. Yes. Okay. So, if you're only doing fifty percent, right? your economics are nowhere near as good as if you're doing 70%. At the time, our recovery rate was running, I mean, it should have been running around about 73 75%. It was running at about 50% because it, it's quite hard. Yes. And these, these new guys are going to find it, it's quite difficult. I mean, if you've got a, in the pit, if you're going to get a tonne of ore and it's got about 1.2, to 1.3% lithium in it, that's a teaspoon. Right, and then you've got to put that through a processing plant. You've got to try and get it out, and you've got iron, you've got mica, and you've got all these other things in there. So it is quite a difficult extraction. Quite, quite extra, extraction process. But the point I'm making is, is that we were learning in that area, and Ken and myself said, well, "Look, if we closed it down, we're going to lose that learning." Um, so what we did was we made a decision to go into what we called moderated production. We didn't want to close it down as such, but moderated production, in its simple terms, turn the plant off, get a contract, ring the bell turn the plant back on again, yep. get the 5,000 tonnes out, turn it off again. Got it. And that's what we did. It, w- it was a tough time. Uh, it took courage at board level, and uh, but we continued on, had strength in the market, and then not long after that, the project next door, which was run by Altura Mining. Altura, uh, yes. I mean, they were struggling. They were struggling under debt um, yes. because financing these things wasn't easy, um, and they, took, they went to the bond market. And they were struggling and they were moving towards administration. The up- upshot it was it was our neighbour. We believed in the industry, we believed in their resource and it's quite advantageous to remove the boundaries between two companies because you can operate from an infrastructure point of view. I mean, part of their resource ran right up onto our boundary, but you can't mine a resource vertically. Yes. They would have needed access to our, our ground. and that's Anyway, the up, upshot of it was Ken and myself were quite keen to pursue that. The board were a bit ambivalent because we were struggling, but uh, at the end of the day, I think we, we bought the project from the administrator for I don't know, 220, 230 million dollars. The difficulty was is that we didn't have a lot of money at the time, and we knew that we went to the administrator. We had to be unconditional. We had to have the capacity to pay the check, whatever it was, on day one. So Aussie Super and RCF stood behind us. They were prepared to sub underwrite and were prepared to back us, which we went through, and that was fine. Well, they'd be very happy with that decision in hindsight. Yes, I. Without giving things away, the issue was at 35 cents. I know RCF let it go at a dollar right. um, and they came to us and said, oh, look, you know, it sort of reached the... I said, that's fine, guys, I understand that. And, you know, they, they took a fair bit off the table. Uh, Aussie Super have uh, have sold down a little bit, but they've done extraordinarily well out of it. Yeah. They've done extraordinarily well out of it and RCF did too. Yeah. Because you look at the value creation out of that acquisition, it's quite quite enormous. Mm, 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 yeah. When you look at the current day Pilbara, yeah, you, I know your last financials came out. Cash at three point three billion, EBITDA at three point three billion. Yeah, it's it's they're big numbers. Oh, they're big numbers. Big I mean, numbers. Um, as you mentioned, I just came back from Melbourne. I've been on on an ESG roadshow talking about all things sustainability and that sort of stuff. You know, and they've said to me, "Well, you've had the benefit of a wonderful spot." You mean price? I said, "Yes, but we produced our, our you know we increased production last year sixty four percent." 
and that just shows that as a company we can execute what we're doing. Yes. I mean, those figures there, I mean, our EBITDA margin last year was nearly 80%, which is crazy. I mean, I loved it. But, yeah, no, it was a wonderful year and we built up enormous cash. And as you said, balance state, we had $3.2 billion in cash. Last year we paid out $0.25 cents fully frank dividend. Once again, the chairman's driving, boys, it's not our money, it belongs to the shareholders. Give, yes. me, give me the capital management policy. So, yeah, no, it was a wonderful year, but part of that, Tim, we have a view on where the market's going and we as a company have committed over a billion dollars in capital to be spent in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Well, that's a good place to just get your observations on lithium, the path forward. Not that anyone's a, a, a forecaster and you can't, you can't predict the future, but, you know, when you look at the pricing... How are you seeing it, Tony, from a from that perspective with a billion dollars to spend? <laughs> if we're going to spend a billion dollars, we obviously think it's worth it. To, Correct. Um, <laughs> to, to be true. Oh, look, we have a great belief in where it's going. Obviously, uh, governments around the world have subsidised EVs. They're talking to carbon reduction, uh, those sorts of things. I think the battery storage part of it is yes. probably not as well understood. Yes. Um, so all the information we read, and we can only go by the demands from our customers and that sort of stuff. We're a great believer in, in in where this is going. Obviously, if we're going to spend a billion dollars, we don't assume that the price will remain where it is today. Yeah. Okay? I mean, when we committed a lot of that, the price of spot was probably... I don't know, around $4,000 a tonne, three and a half, four, four and a half thousand dollars a tonne. Uh, you'd be mad to build your long-term projections on that. You yes. hope it will stay there. Yep. You'll hope it stay there. But when you sit down and look at these investment decisions, any investment decision, any NPV is based upon the assumptions you put into it. Yep. And that can be principally the, the price of the commodity, uh, exchange rate, recovery rate and all those sorts of things. But um, our decisions to spend over a billion dollars is not predicated on spot demand price remaining at $4,000 a tonne. It's sure. certainly a lot lower than that. Yeah, sure. Tony, there's a, a number of explorers out there now looking at the lithium opportunities, right? We've seen a lot of uh, consolidation potentially underway with regards to acquisitions and that sort of thing. Classic example was Rio pegging a lot of ground the other day. So when you look at it, what are some of the observations you could say around the lithium space in terms of the exploration that's underway and the market and the demand, so the supply chain and demand that you've seen with your experience? Well, obviously, I think most people appreciate that the supply will probably in the short term not be met, or sorry, demand won't be met, clearly. I mean, you mentioned Rio. Um, they've pegged a lot of ground. They've looked at the space. They're probably a little bit late in looking at the space. And I think they're probably, I mean, something like Pilbara clearly would have been on their radar. Let's, you know, everyone has a business development division and that sort of stuff. And PLS would have been written up on the board, but next to it is $15 billion plus 33% premium for takeover. Are we going to pay 18 or 19 billion? Who knows? I'm yeah. sure they did that. I'm not pumping that. I have no personal knowledge, but I assume that they've made a decision to try and get into it. And it's a lot cheaper to do it by way of exploration. Yeah. So I think Rio's view is they want to get into it, but they probably want to get into that level. BHP has chosen not to go in that level. As far as the junior market's concerned, well, we are in a junior market, Tim. Lithium is the, is the go-to metal, and there's a lot of lithium around. To use that phrase, pivot, uh, your gold miners, your copper guys are pretty quick to pivot to a new metal. And certainly driven by the, the investment market. It's probably a lot easier for a Euros or whatever it is to raise some money in a junior or the lithium project as opposed to a copper project. Yes. And, and that's driven a lot of it. I mean, the market capitalisation of some of these juniors is pretty strong. It's pretty strong. It's just the way it goes, the nature of the beast. I mean, copper one day, nickel not one day, and lithium the other. Yeah, I'm, sure. I'm not trivialising, but that does what happens. No. Regards to what we're seeing with the lithium, I mean, here we have 
Pilbara market cap well less than a billion dollars in 2016 and here we are at, you know 12 15 yeah, million, yeah, billion yeah, now yeah and the the demand the supply chains are all very well documented we've seen consolidation and that sort of thing do you see the supply versus demand channel with regards to China and North America and where it's going to come from what you mean where the where the, where the lithium's going to come yes, from? Yes, yes. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the lithium needs to come from somewhere, but you need to be able to process it. Yeah. North America, there's a lot of good deposits up there, but they haven't got the haven't got the processing and the infrastructure. I mean, a classic case is, I mentioned to you that we process a ore and produce a, a thing called spodumene, which is a ton of processed ore with about five or six percent lithium in it. Yes. Okay. We ship that to China. Do your maths. Ninety four percent of it's waste. Yeah. So your transport costs, your shipping costs are very high. That's why working on what we call a midstream project to be able to do in Western Australia part of what which the chemical companies would do do, do offshore. America doesn't have that at the moment, but they'll probably come around to it. But you know, the, the North American market is certainly Canada is quite strong. Yeah, sure. Quite strong. Sure. Yep. Just moving on from lithium, let's just focus now on gold. What a story it was when you were part of the Saracen team. You joined as chair in two thousand and eighteen. Yeah, that's right. So it's quite a period of time in your life, Tony. We, you know, there you are with Pilbara, Pilbara. in 2016 and then joining yeah. the board with Saracen in 2018. Yeah. How did that come about? I was approached. I mentioned Morgan Ball, who was the CFO, then the MD at BCI. And uh, when we sold the project to BCI to, to Fortescue, Morgan was out. out and he rang me up. And he said, look, he said, I've been offered a couple of jobs. One is, is the CFO at Saracen, do you know? And I said, well, I obviously know Finn and my reputation. And I said, look, I think it's a good company. Anyway, Morgan eventually went to uh, went to Saracen. Their chairman was looking to retire. A, more, a rally was running around um, interviewing chairman and that sort of stuff. And Morgan said, go and have a chat to Tony. Yes. So he came and had a chat to me. I mean, Finlayson had a wonderful reputation and Saracen was a really good company. And, and one thing it, it has, which I like in companies, is a very good culture. Yes. A uh, very good culture. A good work ethic, but a good responsible social and that sort of stuff. So, yes, I joined the board of, of Saracen. And that team was Rally, Morgan. Simon Jessup. And Marion. Yeah, yeah. 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 And with Troy Irvin doing all the IR work and that sort yeah. of stuff. And, you know, some very good on, on-site managers and that sort of stuff. But um, that was an interesting journey. I mean, uh, you know, they had a target of, you know, flight to 400,000 ounces was the was Rally's, Rally's target. But as I said, it was a very well-run company. But, you know, when you look at your deposit, you want to project, like any business should say, where do I want to be in three years' time? Because in mining, you mine a depleting asset. You know, so you've got to be able to replace it and that yes. sort of stuff. So you know, Finlayson became quite quite uh, keen on on the um, on the super pit. We knew that Barrick was looking to dispose of its interest in that. Rally came to the board and said, "I want to have a good look at it." We understood that that would be quite a bite size for our balance sheet. Yes, quite a bite size for our balance sheet. But Rail, Rail wanted to push it. And the interesting thing about him, and it's why I like to work with people like that who work hard, he's very data driven. Like any managing director, uh, he had a wonderful view of the Swan River from West Farmer's house and that sort of stuff. But when we started to look very closely at uh, the acquisition of 50% in the super pit, he moved to the back of the office and was hanging around with the rock doctors, the mining engineers and that sort of stuff. Sure. And uh, he, he drove that very hard. But that leads me to another thing about the team you build in these things. He was able to concentrate on the geology and the commercial side of it, but it was we knew it was going to be somewhere around a billion dollars. Yeah. And we had some cash, but we didn't have a billion dollars in cash and that sort of stuff. So it was pretty clear we had to be able to once again 
be able to commit when we put the offer to Barrick. Um, so that required us getting getting our hands on someone like one point one, one point two billion dollars, which doesn't grow on trees. Which doesn't grow on trees. So what we did was we had a mixture of debt and equity. But the point I'm making there is that Morgan Board drove that very hard. Right. Morgan did a wonderful job. Raoul obviously was dealing with the equity markets, but Morgan was dealing very much with the banks and that sort of stuff and the lawyers. So you know, in these things, you need good teams. Yes, you need good teams. And he was, you know, I mean. Timmy Gordon at Chalice was well served by Richard Hacker for many years. Yeah. At at uh, at Pilbara, I've been well served by Alex Eastwood, people like Brian Lynn for, for donkey's years, and Morgan did a wonderful job with Saracen. But we went ahead, as you know, as you as you probably asked me the question. We then acquired the super pit, or the half of the super pit, which was an interesting exercise because it was going to go to tender, and then I think about a week or two before the date. And if you've interviewed Finlayson, you may have may have said the same. The the investment bankers for Barrick rang up and said, "No, no, no. You need to get yourself to Canada. You need to have a letter in your hand, which will be an unconditional offer." So we assumed that Northern Star would be going on the plane, and a couple of others, Evolution, would be on the plane. That sort of stuff. So uh, Ral had to get himself up to um, up to Canada with a letter of offer, and I can remember vividly having a number of discussions with Rally, who is very as he should be, is concerned about shareholder funds and yes. things going bad. He yeah. understands projects can go bad. We all understand that. And he was a bit, oh, geez, this goes wrong. You know, and I said, well, Finlayson, you've done all your work and that sort of stuff. You've got the balance sheet. You're not the balance sheet, but you've got the debt. But you've done the work. And back your judgment. Terrell went off there and we put the offer in and we assumed that there'd be a knock on the door. Said, you better up it by 50 million or 100 million. But there was no knock on the door. They came other than... You got it. I think Northern Star went in with an offer which was lower than ours, thinking they might come back and chisel it. But anyway, we played it right and ended up with with fifty percent of the super. And I remember the call I got at three, <laughs> three a.m. on a Saturday morning. Get your arson to Sir George's Terrace. You got sixteen thousand documents to sign, which which we did. Oh, and, Tony, and we, moved, we moved very quickly on that. Yeah, yeah. you know, there's a number of exciting parts about that. But you know, when 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 history looks back, it was the the time when you know Saracen. Took a took a risk and they bought fifty percent of the super pit. Yeah, it was a risk. It was a calculated risk. I mean, they they had a big big rock slide in, in the in in the super pit. Yes. And there was a fair bit of quarantined um, ore there. Um, yeah, and it took a bit of risk, but it was a calculated risk because we wanted to. Because Finlayson's an old Kalgoorlie guy anyway, Leonora guy. Bring it back to West Australian ownership. And as you know, history is is that Northern Star then followed up. Yeah, the Newmont interest. And we were able to obviously you had ownership into the in, into two West Australian companies, and it was quite natural at some stage that as opposed to having a joint venture committee with two different companies on it and two different operating on that sort of stuff, that it should be joined together. And uh, there was the merger of the two the two companies, Northern Star and and Saracen, and, and it wasn't an easy merger to do. Anyway, we worked through that, and there's obviously in any merger there's soft issues. Who's going to do this and that sort of stuff? But finance is one thing. But we have. Uh, yeah, around the years, Tim, I'm not saying it was a big problem here, but but you would know what I meant by soft issues. Yes. Who's going to have that seat? Yep. Who's going to be your CFO? Who's going to be the MD? Who's going to be the chair? And an emerger like that, there were issues we had to address in that. They weren't they weren't difficult issues, but you got to address them. It was mm-hmm. no small merger, a sixteen billion no, no, dollar tie-up. It wasn't. It yeah. wasn't. And uh, I mean, we. Um, yeah, no, we jo- I joined the board of Saracen at the time, as, d- as did Ral and and, uh, and Sal Langer. Oh, and John, John Richard. Uh, uh, Northern the, Star. The, the Northern Star board, yeah. yeah. D- just that that part, and it's an interesting case study in terms of being a chair, right? And you, you've, you're in a position now where you're looking at a sizable deal, firstly, to acquire 50% of the super pit, and you're needed for that guidance, to be someone to bounce things off. What are your thoughts? Just give us a little bit, if you can, Tony, on where you see your role in this. And then 
clearly the merge, whilst to the outsider it seems logical, I'm sure that it's not that logical in every as- aspect. No, no, no. Yeah, and, and, and that and that part of your role, because I, I know we'll get to it at some point, but the role of a chair is a really important one. It's a difficult one. Yeah. It's a difficult one. You're a bit of a sanity checker, yes. um, obviously. You need to have a respectful relationship with your senior management, including manager director. I mean, I, I know all my senior managers without getting too involved, but you need to have a respectful relationship. You need to trust the Rule number one, trust the person who's running the company because yes. you ain't there. The role of a chair is, first of all, to get it. What What is this company trying to do? What are you going to do? Are you an explorer? Are you a developer? Are you trying to sell this project? You're trying to merge or whatever it is. And the role of the chair needs to be quite clear in that it is a bit of a sanity check. You need to understand the big picture, but the chair also has an important role in managing the board because you get three or four or five different people on the board. You get some which are risk-averse, some which are very risk-focused and that sort of stuff, and the chair has to manage all that. And the chair often has to stand between the managing director and the board because it's difficult. You can't have the managing director getting beaten up by non-executive directors all the time because you'll create a relationship which will just break down. Um, But the role of the chair is quite important in that. And then you talk about the merger of something like Northern Star and Saracen. On the face of it, yes, it looks like a good idea, but what probably drove that was two things. One was putting ownership of the super pit under the one entity, but also utilising the assets of Northern Star and Saracen in a constructive way. They all had their own processing plants and that sort of stuff. And between Tonkin and Finlayson, they were able to sit down and you can look at it and say, well, let's rationalise that plant. We can probably don't need to expand that plant, but we can increase that one. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, Br- Bronzewing, I mean, didn't have, I think it was Bronzewing, I can't remember, but we looked at... To, for that to fly, it was a bronze wing, but it was bronze wing. It needed a, Northern Star would have had to build a plant, but by looking at where Saracen's plant was, they could truck down to that and that sort of stuff. So yes. this is where these guys get quite good. The synergies. The synergies. I mean, people talk about synergies, and they always say that your operating costs. Are just, and a lot of people overuse the word synergy and that sort of stuff, but it's in the infrastructure stuff that that's where you can make it. You know, you can say, well, let's. Instead of you building your plant, we're running at 4,000 tonnes per annum, let's make our 6,000 tonnes per annum, which will decrease the cost of running mine and will allow your ore to come through to my mine. Yeah. So, so. Yeah. But, but, but but chairman has sort of roles in those sort of things. I mean, I'm not a technical sort of person, but I always focus on what, what, what cash is required. I mean, I've always said when people come with a proposition, I said, look, the purchase price is one thing. How much money do you need to keep this thing going? That sort of stuff. Gosh, so well, they all came together, as you say, yep. first time and single ownership for the Golden Mile being under single ownership for the first time in its 125-year history. Well, you were quoted in the Financial Times in 2020, Tony. This is an M&A that works, and it sort of really does resonate now that what we've just spoken about. Tony Keenan, chairman of Saracen, said about the deal with Northern Star, this is a true merger of equals with real synergies that combines two dynamic entrepreneurial management teams. And, you know, that to me just speaks volumes about now what, the way you yeah. described it. Yeah. I know you went on to the board of Northern Star and you retired in 21. And that, and that Tim's no reflection on Northern Star. It was a big board and I sat down with Michael Cheney, who was then the chairman, and Michael's a good friend of mine and has done a wonderful job. And I said, Mike, this is nine people on the board. As you know, I like to be a little bit more involved and that sort of stuff. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I, I don't think I'll stand for re-election, Mike. And he said, well, I'd like you to remain. I said, no, look, that's fine. 
So yeah. I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, they gave you a very complimentary. I mean, the announcement that came out from Northern Star in twenty one was very complimentary, and it just highlighted your role. Um, but I just to 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 point that out, Northern Star's chairman. Michael Cheney thanked Mr. Keenan for his significant contribution to the company. Tony's experience and wisdom made him a really valuable member of the board and we shall miss his input greatly. And no doubt with the team at Saracen, you know, you'd taken it to the point where you were now looking for another opportunity oh, or no, another no, challenge. No, they're a very kind word from Michael. I think he said that because he owes me $6. He beat me at golf once. and I'm still, <laughs> so Cheney keeps telling me he can't play golf because he's got a crook hand. I, I reckon Michael just doesn't want to give me the $6 back that he owes me. <laughs> uh, so it sort of started, though, in a way, a bond between you and the Saracen team because at some point later down the track, the door knocks again and and Genesis Minerals is up and away. Yep, yep. No, I was remember sitting at the at the kitchen table and my phone rang and of course you you know, I hadn't spoken to Rally for quite a while. Yeah. And he said, Oh, TK, I've just checked, he said, as he called me, he said, You're still on my favourites list on the speed dial. I said, That's good, Ralph. He said, Look, could we catch up? And I said, yeah, that's fine. Anyway, I, I, I sat down with him and coming with the Morgans there or not, and he just explained to me what he was looking to do with, with Genesis. He just put himself in a position. He'd, he'd got a lot of equity in Genesis and performance rights and that sort of stuff, and he had a view on what he wanted to do or what should be done with the Leonora district with the consolidation, and obviously one of the prizes there was the was the mill at, at Gawlia and the Sons of Gawlia Mine, which, as you know, had been operating for a long, long, long time. But Ralph had a view on that, and he said, said, look, he said, confidentially, Tony, he said, we'd like to have a crack at St Barbara and uh, Morgan's going to come with me, Lee Stevens going to come with me and Troy Irvin's going to come with me. We'd like you to have a look at, you know, would you be prepared to step on the board? Mm. Uh, to which I said, well, yeah, okay. I mean, just just talk to me about, about life. And I, I understood what they were doing and, th- and they're, they're individuals which I trust implicitly. Yes. I've worked with them. Finlayson does his own thing at times, but he's respectful, keeps you informed. And I had no problem in in, uh, in saying, yeah, look, I'll do it. But as you know, if history will show you the merger between Genesis and Barbara was long drawn out. Yes. It was really long and drawn out. And a couple of issues for us is we were very keen on what they had in the Leonore district, but weren't that interested with respect to what they had in PNG, yes. Papua New Guinea, nor in uh, North Atlantic in uh, in North America. We didn't want to bring them on the balance sheet. So we negotiated with them on the condition that they remove those from uh, from the balance sheet. Anyway, the upshot of it was St Barbara started to struggle. We went into what was called a scheme of arrangement, um, right. whereby the two companies would be merged. Our preference had always been an asset sale by the assets as opposed to merging the companies. But anyway, as it uh, as it turned out, Zimbabwe was struggling financially and uh, we decided to move away from the scheme through negotiations and Zimbabwe understood that and we moved into an asset sale. So you, you're better off, Tim, as you would know, you're better off to buy the asset than buy the balance sheet. You buy the balance sheet, whatever comes with it. If I owe Tim Banfield money, that's on the balance sheet. Yep. But if I buy the asset, you're not there. So yep. yeah, a lot of work was done on that. and And ultimately successful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the proof will be in the pudding at the end of the day. I mean, uh, at the moment, we're able to utilise the, the Gawlia Mill for some of the Genesis ore through there, through Ulysses and that sort of stuff. So, yes. yeah. So once again, you've got a rationalisation. And, of course, at the same time, Genesis has 80% of Dacian, yes. which has the Mount Morgan's Mill, which which is a big mill and will feature very heavily in, uh, in, in the Leonore district. It's quite an interesting story when you think about where Raoul's grown up and now he's sort of consolidating that area. When you look at it, if we go right back to what, the way you look at companies 
you know, that revenue cost, mm. that acquisition, the mills, you know, you're 300,000 ounces mm. style of target, yeah, whereas yeah. I know with Saracen it was 400,000, 400, the flight yeah. to 400,000. Yeah. It's a similar but different proposition. Yeah, it, it, there are similarities there. As you, you know, Tim, as you know, even in your own lifestyle, I mean, I see things differently in, tw in 2023 than I probably did in, in, in 2000. I mean, I probably have a broader view. Yes. I probably don't get myself as, as much into minutiae as I used to. I mean, lawyers can't help but get involved in clause 13.6, subparagraph 5, <laughs> you know, for goodness sake, what are we trying to do with this document? <laughs> um, I have a broader approach and as a chair, yeah, I, you know, as you mentioned, there's synergies, there's cash flow, and also important part of the cash flow is what money. It's like in Genesis, what money do we need to spend to bring Ulysses on? Yes. Um, our own projects. What money do we need to spend on the Gawlia Mill? Those sort of things, and they become important. It's a good place to just maybe pivot to the left a little bit and talk about the mining sector in general. You know, with your experience in Pilbara and also now with Genesis, how are you seeing this cost inflation? Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a real thing. Yeah. It, it, it's a real thing. It's probably softened a little bit now, but part of the cost inflation was your suppliers and your contractors weren't as prepared to quote to, uh, to, to quote to price, yes. fixed price, because their internal, their prices, their labour things were, were changing too. So, uh, yes, I mean, we, I mean we, we've had a couple of blowouts at Pilbara. I mean, uh, our P680 project, which was one to increase the run rate, from about 500,000 tonnes a year to 680,000 yes. tonnes. And we think we first came in at 280 million. Well, six months later, we were 400 million. So they're the sorts of, we may not have done as well as we should have done in our costing. But, you yeah, know, those real pressures are there. Yep. And where the other pressure has been, Tim, is in employment. In Pilbara last year, we, we increased our staffing levels by 78%, not by 2%. Not 78%. 78%. So we had to get those people. We had to get those people. And we went on an aggressive campaign. We, uh, I don't think I've seen a, a media company, a media, a mining company, you know, go to the radio, billboards on the freeway and that sort of stuff because we, we needed the stuff. But to attract them, you, why someone wants to work for a company in 2023 is a little bit different than the way they, why they wanted to work for that company in 2015. 2015 was principally about dollars. Yeah. Right? Nowadays, a lot of your people, you know, they're far more socially conscious. They want to understand what your domestic violence probably, what your, what your attitude to sustainability, what your attitude is to native title and that sort of stuff. So at Pilbara, we've tried to build a very strong culture and we attracted people, I think, because of that, Yes. doing that. But we're in a competitive industry. We are probably in a... Well, mining is competitive, but if there's one hard rock company in Western Australia that's trained processing engineers and metallurgists for lithium, it's us. Yeah. So, you know, we compete with Liontown, West Farmers. They keep pinching out. I mean, you know, Goida, stop pinching my staff. Uh, <laughs> and Tony Otteviada, stop pinching my staff. But, you know, that's a, that, that's a real issue. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that, that is an issue. But that's fine. You know, you can deal with it. The staffing issue is a challenge when you look forward as well, you know, with the ramp up of these projects, we're going to need more and more staff all over WA. Mm, mm, yeah. You know, mm. What do you see the solution is ultimately, Tony? Well, I suppose, I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose yeah. the people talk immigration and that sort of stuff. I don't know. Or, or, and mining is probably not as attractive as it was mm. to, to a lot of people. And I know the School of Mines in Kalgoorlie, they're generally on the hunt 
people to come. We have quite a strong uh, Pilbara and Saracen and Northern Star have quite a strong graduate program. Yes. To sort of say to people, and also a gap year program at Saracen, we introduced a gap year. Tim, you're between Scotch College and University, you don't know what you're going to do. Why don't you come and work for us for a year? Yeah. And you can work out what you want to do. So a lot of those initiatives are still going on. Fantastic. And, and Bill Beeman and Rally Finlayson and Ken Brinson have driven a lot of those. Yeah. You know. Yeah. We covered a little bit about this earlier, Tony, but the importance and role of boards. And I know we talked about earlier, you just come back from Melbourne and you've been talking a lot about ESG. It is an yeah. issue and, and a number of these uh, proxy advisors and that sort of stuff, they want to see the chairman or the yes. chair, I should say. And uh, I had to spend time talking to, to them about you know sustainability and gender diversity and water usage and that sort of stuff. And it does put pressures on the chairman. Yeah. It's something which doesn't come naturally to me. That sort of stuff. Yes. I like to talk about cash flows and cost per tonne and that sort of stuff. But uh, yeah. anyway. But it's becoming, you know, in terms of your role, you see this as becoming more and more a time part of that role? Very much so. Yeah. But yeah. Very much so. I remember talking to Ken McKenzie, the uh, the chairman of BHP, uh, not that they were interested in, in making a bid to us, but uh, I asked him how much of his time he had to do on this, what you'd call, non-core business. I, I, I'm careful when I use that phrase because yes. some people say sustainability is your core business and Ken said a lot of his time, probably 50% of his time yeah. is on that. It, it's just, I mean, people invest in funds for those reasons and that sort of stuff. They want to know the ethics within the, within the funds. Yes. I worry sometimes that, that boards are losing the concept of shareholder value they're getting a little bit preoccupied with what I call non-core things and tend to focus on some of the negatives opposed to the positive and values and that sort of stuff. And I just find that there are a lot of good directors around, but there's a lot of poor directors around, Tim. They, it's not that they're there for the money, but they may be there for the, the prestige if it comes sitting on the board, but they are former lawyers or accountants and that sort of stuff and they, they gravitate to that. And, and a lot of them are good, but some of them just, I, I don't think appreciate you're there for shareholder value. Yes. It's all about non-dilution. It's all about earnings per share and those sorts of things. Yes. And it, the, the role of a chair is to make people remember that. I mean, I've had times at Pilbara where the board said, oh, geez, you want to spend that sort of money. So I've gone to the finance department and said, I want a paper from you which is based solely on value. Don't worry about safety. Oh, it's important, but you know what I'm saying? Just Can we just work out what this project is worth? Yes. And I want to know the assumptions you put in, you know, your, your pricing assumptions and your foreign exchange and your recovery rate and that sort of stuff. And, you know, I've had the conversation change quite markedly on a couple of occasions when we've actually looked at the value yeah. and that sort of stuff. So anyway, it's, it's interesting. And the, and the role of a chair is sometimes because you've got, you know, you, you, I have difficulties with my directors at times. But, I mean, the Pilbara board's a wonderful board. So is the Jensen board. They're, they're wonderful boards. Okay. Oh, thanks for sharing that, Tony. It's, it's really, really interesting. Look, I just want to move on now to another part of your life because we've just covered off on what is a remarkable period in your professional life and it's still going. This part is to do with the not-for-profit and charitable sector. I know you've spent like something like around 30 years, you know, supporting and involved with Anglicare. Yeah, uh, I'll, and you're I'll, a chair for twelve. Yeah, I was on the. I think I would have been on the board of Anglicare for twenty three or twenty four years. You're right. And I chaired for twelve. The chairman of Anglicare at the time was Archbishop Peter Carnley. Right. Uh, who rang me up and said he was going to become the. I forget what the phrase is, head of the Anglican Church in Sydney. And he said, we need to appoint a new chair. I said, that's interesting. And he said, 
you're going to do it, Tony. And I said, yeah, <laughs> sure, Archbishop Peter, I did. And I did it for, I had been on the board for quite a while. And Anglicare has been a wonderful organisation. It was my father that got me on there. Right. Because all keen we get involved in those things. And when I joined the board of Anglicare, the revenue was, the turnover was probably only about two or three million dollars. And I'm going back probably 30 years, Tim. And most of it was just emergency relief. It was the blanket. And, and soup on a cold day. Yep. And I look at the way Anglican morphed over the years in which I was into domestic violence, into financial counselling, into homes for people who are lost and all that sort of stuff. It's a wonderful organisation and, uh, yeah, I was there for a long time. But I suppose it shines a light on your you as a person because you spent a lot of time there and you're now also chair of the Fiona Wood Foundation which focuses on research into burns. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was that a passion that you wanted? No, to- not really. I, I'd been on the board of Anglican. I'd resigned, and I spoke to a friend of mine, and I just said, "Look, Ron, I wouldn't mind getting back on another not-for-profit." He said, "Tony, we've got the one for you. Yeah, it's the Fiona Wood Foundation." And I said, "Why?" And he said, "Ah, oh, look, with great respect, the board is quite medically driven." I think we probably just need a bit of an old head in there. Yes. So I went on on the board of the Fiona Wood Foundation. Basically the board – and Fiona's a wonderful person and, and the work they do in, in, in Burns is just, just incredible. But no, I, I uh, after about two meetings, Fiona came to me and said, Tony, would you mind sharing it? I said, fine. I said, let's get the finances in order. Yes. Once again, Tony Cairnham wants to know where's the cash flow? Yeah. Uh, because I said, Fiona, my job or our board's job is to give you and the researchers the ammunition and the oxygen you need to do your job properly what drove me at, um, at, at the Fiona Wood Foundation. Gosh. Well, look, for the listener, this this accumulation of Tony's professional career, and we're talking about here establishing, being a part of growing companies, having a role to play as a chair and board member on, on multiple companies and the success that's come with that, all accumulated in 2019, he was awarded a member of the Order of Australia for significant service to business and to the community. Tony, you, there must have been a pretty significant, we're using that word again, moment in your life in terms of recognition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was that was that that was staggering. I got the got the email from I know the governor general's office or wherever it is or something. Yeah. Look at these things and said uh, you're going to be recommended for a, a member of the Order of Australia. Will you accept it if that recommendation is accepted by the governor general? And I said, well, yeah, of course I would. Um, oh, and it was, it was wonderful, and yeah. uh, you know, to be able to share that moment with my family, my children were able to come. was It was wonderful. Gosh, it's a a real recognition, and uh, I mean, it's obviously something you're very proud of. Yeah, no, very very much so. And uh, in fact, just to use your phrase, pivoting, that reminded me of something. When I was lucky enough to be to receive the Order of Australia, I got a letter from uh, a guy I had done a fair bit of work for over the years, and it was Kerry Stokes. And Kerry said, dear Tony, congratulations. Uh, he said, and I mentioned to you, Tim, that I'd been involved in a very long application for third te- television licence. Yes. We had a team of four. Yes. Well, on the same date that I got my Order of Australia, two other members were also recognised for different things. For Neville Owen, for his work as he became FAF Royal Commission, he was a Supreme Court judge, he headed up uh, Catholic uh, stuff on sexual abuse and that sort of stuff. Neville himself was an instructing solicitor and a fellow named Michael Slattery who uh, at the time was a junior lawyer yes. and a junior, Darrell Williams, became a, a judge in, in New South Wales and uh, and headed the you know, guru in New South Wales. So Neville and Mike and myself were all awarded on the same day. And it, was, and it was Kerry. Well, I don't know where Kerry picked it up. Yeah. But he obviously has lots of people going through all these things. Yeah. And uh, he also sent me a $50 scratchy. <laughs> I wrote one back and said, Stokes, as usual, I didn't get any money from you. <laughs> well, look, 
Tony, I mean, that's a really good place to sort of start to, I suppose, bring this to a conclusion. We could talk for a long time. And I mean, I say that from my perspective because mm. you are a very knowledgeable person. You've got so much experience and you, you're very happy to share, which is thank you very much for that. I will say this has been an amazing chat and your insight into your life and career and the way you've taken your skill sets. And I, I say this from behalf of listeners that are listening because you've taken your skill sets in law and, and then media and your upbringing around particularly interested in the, the Pilbara transport and the way that was built. And, you know, it all has a, has a role to play, the drill rigs with Tim uh, in Kalgoorlie. And you've applied it vigorously in the Western Australian corporate mining area and, and you've had some seriously tremendous success. And I will say that you're exceptionally well respected. And, and this all comes through hard work. And, you know, the Gary Player, I think, once said, the harder you work, the luckier you get. That's very true. I, I overlay that with your contributions to the, the special causes that dear to you, such as Anglicare and Fiona Wood. And it's no wonder that you're awarded a member of Australia, a member of the Order of Australia. So, Tony, thank you. And, thank you, and on behalf of Euros Hartleys, phoning the front, thanks for joining us. It has been awesome. Yeah, no, thanks, Tim. I appreciate the opportunity. And as I said to you, it required me to reflect back on a lot of things that I've done or probably not done. And yes, I think I've been lucky enough to have a varied career and uh, work with some wonderful people. And uh, yeah, and here I am sitting across the great Tim Banfield. And he's he's trying to make things good for me <laughs> as I prepare for the Euros Hartley's Golf Day tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Tim. I appreciate that. Nah, Thank you very much for the you. opportunity. Thanks okay, for coming mate. in, Tony. Okay, thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to Euros Harley's Finding the Front. This podcast is for general information purposes only. Please check out eurosharleys.com for more information. Euros Harley's holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.